I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at Genesis chapters 4 through 7. In chapter 4, we begin with the story of Cain and Abel. Verse 1, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall not thou be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and slew him. Eve initially bore two sons, Cain and Abel. The wording of verses 1 and 2 lead us to believe that they were twins, one conception, two boys. There's been much discussion among Old Testament scholars regarding Eve's statement in verse 1 after Cain emerged, where she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. First of all, based upon the wording in Hebrew, it has been suggested that she was boasting that she, as God himself, was able to create a man. That notion would suggest a less than right attitude toward God on Eve's part. To reinforce this theory, this statement is contrasted to her exclamation after the birth of Seth in verse 25, where she said, For God said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. In that verse, she clearly gives God the glory for the birth of Seth. Now the second conjecture regarding her statement is quite noble on her part, when it is suggested that she was exclaiming joy over the birth of Cain because she thought he was perhaps the Messiah. In order for that to be a viable theory, one must absolutely believe that Eve understood Genesis 3.15 to be a prophecy regarding the Messiah. I'm just not certain that Genesis 3.15 is to be understood as being messianic. However, since the Hebrew word for Adam and man are identical and can only be differentiated by context, perhaps she was expressing amazement that she bore a little Adam. Abel kept sheep, and Cain grew produce. That's really beside the point. Obviously, they'd been instructed that their offerings were to be animal sacrifices, not fruit and vegetables. Some have suggested that Cain's offering was fine, but his attitude was wrong. That doesn't seem to be the problem according to Hebrews 11.4, where it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. According to this verse, it is apparent that the sacrifice itself was wrong. It seems that Cain was to offer an animal sacrifice. Nothing else would do. 
That being the case, it's the familiar scenario of man trying to circumvent God's standard. There's another point here. Cain could have made it right. We see that in verse 7. But instead he chose to slay the person who did do it right, his brother Abel. Why did he do it? Well, 1 John 3.12 says this, Not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. John there tells us that, that Cain was motivated by Satan himself. The exact Greek adjective paneros is used twice in that verse by John, first to describe Satan as that wicked one, and then to describe Cain's actions leading to the sacrifice he made before God when it says works were evil. Let's face it, this was no mistake, no inadvertent shortcoming on Cain's part. Cain was our first example of outright rebellion against God. There's a lesson about the unregenerate life to be found here. Did Cain disobey because he lacked faith that God was God? Nope. He knew exactly who God was, and yet he still disobeyed. When people we meet stand in defiance against our Savior, the reason can be summed up with one verse. That verse, Psalm 10:4. It says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. God and Cain have a discussion in verses 9-24. through 24. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city, after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irod, and Irod begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zelah. And Ada bare Jabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zelah she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zelah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Well, lying to God, how could that have seemed like a good idea? It's just like the child with chocolate all over his face who refuses to acknowledge that he took the candy. Now, God did place a curse upon Cain, 
but he put a do not kill mark on Cain so that no one would take his life. Here are the provisions of Cain's curse by God. Cain was cursed from the earth, verse 11. He would not be successful as a farmer, verse 12. As a fugitive and a vagabond, Cain was destined to wander from place to place, verse 12. And as such, Cain feared that he would be slain by others. We see that in verse 14. And as we mentioned, Cain's life was protected by God with a seal, verse 15. He made his home east of Eden and built a city after his son Enoch. This is not the Enoch who was later a descendant of his brother Seth in Genesis 5.18. Verse 16 says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. We see something of Cain's descendants after this, the first occurrence of polygamy with Lamech in verse 19, along with our second occurrence of the violent taking of life in verses 23 and 24. Perhaps it was self-defense. Well, it's just a tough family. Now finally we have the uh, introduction of another boy to Adam and Eve in verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She had appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son. And he called his name Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So, consider Adam and Eve. With their righteous son dead and their other son in exiled murder, they're very excited about the birth of another son, Seth. Eve's expression of joy in verse 25 indicates her gratitude that God had restored what Cain had taken away. By the way, Seth is the Hebrew word for substituted. Incidentally, the last sentence of verse 26 is obviously meant to add significance to the birth of Cain when it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It obviously marks the beginning of an era, but what kind of an era? Before we answer that question, consider this. Where did Cain get his wife? Only three possibilities initially come to mind. Number one, maybe God created more people. Number two, maybe they were descendants of Abel before his death. Or number three, they were descendants of Adam and Eve. The Bible doesn't tell us directly, but scratch out that first possibility that, uh, that God created more people. Paul makes it clear that everyone has an Adamic sin nature because everyone is a descendant of Adam. So, no, God did not create more people. Therefore, Cain either married his sister or his niece. We are not told specifically, but we get the impression that neither Cain nor Abel bore children prior to the murder of Cain. Whichever the case, Adam and Eve obviously reproduced other children prior to Seth, but Seth gets special mention. Could it be that Seth was the first male child born into this world after Abel, who was not a descendant of that wicked Cain? It seems likely that Seth marked the beginning of a righteous, God-worshipping bloodline after the death of Abel, and so it is said, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That would also explain Eve's statement in verse 25 when she proclaims the birth of Seth that God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. Well, Eve must have had a long string of girls in between the births of Abel and Seth. We do know for certain from Genesis 5-4 that Adam begat sons and daughters. However, Genesis 5-3 tells us that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Now, I know you love to hear genealogy, so chapter 5 of Genesis 
This book is for you. Beginning with verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, and the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. And Seth lived in a hundred and five years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. And Enos lived ninety years, and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan eight hundred and fifteen years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were nine hundred and five years, and he died. And Cain lived seventy years, and begat Mahalalel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel eight hundred and forty years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived sixty and five years, and begat Jared. And Mahalalel lived after he begat Jared eight hundred and thirty years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalel were eight hundred and ninety and five years, and he died. And Jared lived in 160 and two years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived in a hundred and eighty and seven years, and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred sixty and nine years, and he died. And Lamech lived in a hundred eighty and two years, and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah five hundred ninety and five years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were seven hundred seventy and seven years, and he died. And Noah was five hundred years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, you see, chapter 5 is the record of the descendants of Adam through his son Seth down to Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In all, 1,656 years are spanned by this chronological record from creation to the flood. A point needs to be noted regarding verse 2. The Hebrew word for Adam and man are identical. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for both is Adam. That Hebrew word is used six times in the first five verses. The exact form of the word in every instance. The only way to determine whether it is to be translated as Adam or as man or mankind is from context. Obviously, in verse 2, it is a reference to man rather than Adam as translated Adam in the King James Version. Notice that Seth is given elder son status in verse 4. As a matter of fact, Noah's genealogy traces back to Seth, making Noah's three sons the father of us all, all descendants of Seth. Yep. 
Though Adam bore other sons and daughters, Seth must have been the third son born to Adam and Eve. In the genealogical record here, a bit of information is included along the way, with special note in verses 21 through 24 regarding Enoch. Notice verse 24, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die, God just took him. That places Enoch in a very special category. Notice what Paul says in Hebrews 11.5 regarding Enoch. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because that God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. No question here, Enoch did not die. Notice how long everybody in Seth's bloodline lived, and how old they were before they had their firstborn sons. Those lifespans begin to shorten after the flood, where it is not uncommon to find these firstborn sons before the flood being born when their fathers were well over 100 years old. Abraham, after the flood, was considered old at 100 for the purpose of fathering a child. Could it be that the canopy of water we saw in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, along with the absence of rain, somehow shielded humans from environmental impacts that later caused rapid aging? Well, who really knows for certain? Then we see in chapter 6 some people or beings. Let's read verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now there's a doctrine that the sons of God of verse 2 has a reference to fallen angels. It's further said that these angels intermarried with humans to create a race of giants. Many conclude that there's at least one major problem with this theory. Christ said in Matthew chapter 22 verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Does he not plainly say there that angels do not marry? Many therefore conclude that verse 2 is probably making reference to Cain's descendants intermarrying with the other descendants of Adam and Eve. After all, the only other genealogical record given to us besides that of Seth is, of course, Cain's. It's interesting, however, that this tradition of the fallen angels intermarrying goes back at least a couple of centuries before Christ. The angels marrying human scenario is found in the compiled copies of the so-called Book of Enoch in some detail. This seems to have credibility to some inasmuch as Jude appears to quote from this book in Jude verses 14 and 15 though not regarding this issue. The currently extant book of Enoch is what scholars refer to as a pseudepigraphical book, not inspired by the Holy Spirit and not included in the canon of Scripture. Copies of the book are available today and may in fact contain portions of Enoch's prophecies. However, it's not translated from uh, Hebrew manuscripts beyond just some small fragments, the manuscripts are Ethiopic and some Greek. As I said, no Hebrew manuscripts. It is obvious to virtually all scholars who have studied this book that it is a compilation of works from various authors rather than only Enoch. As a matter of fact, even the casual Bible student will observe how uncharacteristic much of the contents are with the Old Testament scripture. The now extant book of Enoch is obviously a late work 
perhaps as late as the second century BC, but apparently does contain at least some of the words of Enoch's prophecies. The problem is this, it's impossible to know which are truly from Enoch and which are not. The real book of Enoch was not preserved, and it would not be prudent to view that which is purported to be the book of Enoch in print today as having any authenticity or authority beyond that which is substantiated in our own canon of scripture. Therefore, the fact that the book of Enoch gives some detail regarding the situation in Genesis 6 verses 1 and 2 reflects only that there were people in the 2nd century BC who subscribed to that theory. It doesn't actually validate the theory. So how about a hybrid view of what took place in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2? Could it be that these fallen angels possessed men who married the daughters of men in verse 2? We know that on numerous occasions in Scripture we have seen the demon possession of humans. Jesus himself cast out demons from people. Demons are no more than fallen angels. Therefore, is it at least reasonable to theorize that the sons of God could refer to men possessed by these fallen angels? The bottom line is this. It's all speculation. No one can know for certain what exactly verses 1 and 2 are describing. Now, beginning with verse 3 of chapter 6, we got some serious wickedness here. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Verse 3 has a phrase open to diverse interpretation. Here's what it says. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in a hundred and twenty years. So what does that mean? That man will now only live to be 120 years old? Well, men did have longer lifespans than 120 years after Genesis chapter 6, but I don't think that's what it means. The rest of the chapter talks about the wickedness on earth and the man, Noah, whom God raised up for the remedy. I think this period of 120 years is a reprieve from God's judgment. In other words, 120 years from Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 until the flood comes and destroys virtually all of mankind from the earth. Let's look at the numbers regarding a 120 year reprieve from Genesis chapter 3 until the flood. While they aren't conclusive, they do create a strong case for this view. We see in Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then we see in Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. We see in Genesis 6, 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then we see in 6, 10, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the math works out that Genesis 6-3 refers to God's decision to give a reprieve of 120 years, 20 years before Noah begat his children in verse 10. 
While not conclusive, it does make a pretty good case for the 120 years being a reference to the time period between verse 3 and Genesis 7-6 when the flood began. One more interesting aspect of this 120-year period, what did Noah do during this time? Peter gives us a hint to the answer in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It seems safe to assume that God gave the wicked people of the earth a 120-year reprieve, during which time Noah preached salvation to them. They refused that salvation. As an aside, Lamech, Noah's father, lived 595 years after Noah's birth. We see that in Genesis 5.30. So he died five years before the flood. And Noah's sons were born when he was 500 years old, according to Genesis 5.32. So they were 100 years old when the flood came. Now back to the giants. The Hebrew word for giant in verse 4 is just used in two verses in the entire Old Testament here and Numbers chapter 13 verse 33 where there it refers to the large people in the land of Canaan. However, the word may be translated bully rather than giant. All other Old Testament occurrences of the word giant come from a totally unrelated Hebrew word. Since we saw Lamech's threat of violence, that was Cain's descendant in chapter 4, perhaps the point intended here is that the intermarriage between Cain's descendants and the rest of mankind resulted in the birth of some really wicked, mean-spirited men. With that being said, let me introduce you to what I consider an erroneous doctrine that is commonly held today. It is widely taught that the sons of God of verse 2 were supernatural beings, fallen angels, who reproduced children with mortal women, thus producing these giants. As I said before, I'm relatively certain that angels just don't have what it takes to reproduce. Therefore, I take a less exciting view of the origin and identity of these giants in verse 4. Sometimes I'm just kind of boring like that. In verse 6, we see that God repented. That's the wording found in King James Version. This terminology has caused some to stumble because they misunderstand what this word means. The word repent in the Old Testament does not have the same meaning as the word repent in the New Testament. One is Old Testament Hebrew, and the other is New Testament Greek. The Hebrew word found here for repentance, nakam. This word means to express sorrow. God expressed sorrow over what man had become. The New Testament word, it's a verb for repent, is metanaeo. This New Testament word rendered repent means to change one's mind or attitude, usually in the context of turning toward God. To be clear, God didn't change his mind about anything, but he was sorrowful regarding the course mankind had taken. So, beginning with verse 8 of chapter 6, we find the remedy. Noah, go build an ark. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupted before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them 
with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives, with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall thou come unto thee, to keep them alive." And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Well, Noah was righteous before God. We see that in verses 8 and 9. The rest of the inhabitants of the earth, with the exception of Noah's family, were condemned to death because of their wickedness. We see that in verses 12 and 13. God instructs Noah to build an ark, a huge floating box, about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and three stories high, described in verses 14 through 16. Keep in mind, it didn't have to sail, it just had to float. By the way, flooding was an unknown phenomenon back then, so so was rain. Remember how the earth was watered back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6? It was a process of evaporation and condensation but never any rain. While Noah is building an ark because of the threat of a flood by rain, well, it must have seemed kind of ridiculous to all those wicked people. Rain? What's rain, they must have asked. Well, they'll soon find out. Here we find the first usage of the word covenant in Scripture in verse 18. God's special covenant will be through Noah. Noah then gets his instructions regarding the stocking of the ark which is continued in chapter 7. By the way, a look at that covenant is seen in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 through 9, 17. Consult the notes on BibleTrack.org. It'll be uh, tomorrow's reading to uh, get the details of that covenant. All right, in chapter 7, it's time to pack up and go. Verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house unto the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him to the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. They went in two and two into Noah into the ark, the male and the female, 
as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in a hundred and fifty days. All right, here's a Bible trivia question. How many of each type of animal did God instruct Noah to put into the ark? Now, you may want to take a look at verses 2 and 3 before you answer that. That's right. Seven of the clean animals, while only two of the unclean animals. Now, at this point, Noah is 600 years old, and it starts to rain. It only rained for 40 days, but the waters covered the earth for much longer than that. We find in the passage 150 days before the tops of the mountains began to peek through. I've got a chart in tomorrow's reading, Genesis chapter 8, that shows a complete timeline for the events of the flood. You may want to consult that. The cataclysm of the flood caused a landscape transformation after that. Mountains and valleys were accentuated the highest previously being less than 25 feet or so, according to verse 20, and the land masses were divided into continents. It was truly a global occurrence. Verse 24 says that everything upon dry land died except those in the ark with Noah. Well, where did all that water come from, you might ask? Well, here's the answer. From above and below. First, back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It had never rained before. There was a natural evaporation condensation process that watered the earth. That means that there was a canopy of water encompassing the earth. Well, that canopy collapsed. But wait, there's more. Read ahead down to Genesis chapter 8 verse 2, and you notice that there were additional fountains of the deep. Water under the earth also surfaced. Add all the water from above to all the water under the earth, well... That's a lot of water. Remember this from Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. 
there was originally a single landmass surrounded by water on the earth. Well, that landmass disappeared. And when the water subsides, providing dry land over a year later, the topography of the earth has changed significantly. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that the topography of the earth continued to transition into what it is today over one man's lifetime, Peleg who's seen in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, after the flood. Well, the water reached its highest point on day 150. One more interesting note here is to be found in verse 16 when it says, The Lord shut him in. God himself sealed them into the ark, which may explain why they stayed in the ark for 87 days beyond the discovery of dry land. They didn't leave until God allowed them to leave. Again, for a chronology of the flood milestones, check out the commentary on Genesis chapter 8 and see the chart. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.